0: Good morning, a selection of readings from Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do, you see, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. The word of the Lord. So today
1: is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, I'm not sure of everyone's church background, you know what what you experienced growing up, but I, I expect at least for some of us, you know Advent is a word we've heard, but maybe it's a foreign Concept Maybe the most you know about it is it's that season of the year, you know, the month or so before Christmas uh, when you can get a a calendar that is filled with some really bad candy that you get to eat for 25 days. And uh, I know for me growing up, what Advent meant was that my mom would take out the homemade Advent calendar that she had made with all with twenty five pockets in it, and my sister and I would fight over you know who got to take out the cut up piece of fruit roll up and eat it each and every day, and and you got to be fruit roll ups by the end of uh, it was basically fruit jerky uh, by the time we got to Christmas, but but I still I looked forward to it each and every year. But Advent it's it's about so much more, of course, than than the weeks leading up to Christmas. Advent, when we properly understand it, it's the beginning of the church year so happy new year everyone and and when we understand this season and we truly embrace it we can see that this is is god's gift to the church that it's a season of darkness of silence of waiting and in the midst of, of the hustle and the bustle that surrounds us and even at times threatens to just envelop us and overwhelm us advent exists as this kind of sanctuary The great Episcopalian preacher Fleming Rutledge says of Advent, of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension between the already and the not yet, that's where the church lives its life. That's where each and every Christian lives his or her life. And I love that little phrase that she uses, the time between, because that's where we all are, the time between Christ's first coming and his second, the time between our birth and our death, the time between whatever it is that came before and whatever it is that we're hoping will come next, that human life, church life, Christian life, they are all lived in the time between. And in that time, we walk by faith. And not by sight. That's why during Advent we read the prophets who spoke uh, God's word to the people about a future that they could not see but was promised. The prophets spoke during dark times, evil times even, and they spoke of, of a future that was rooted in God's past faithfulness but was looking forward to a future w- when God would come to deal with all of the darkness, all of the brokenness, all of the evil, and he would set the world right. Habakkuk is our prophetic guide this morning on, on what it means to live in the time between of Advent. But here's the thing about Habakkuk. It's not just that his name is difficult to pronounce and intimidating when you see on the page, but, but Habakkuk, you could go to church your whole life and never hear a sermon on Habakkuk. So now you can all die saying that that never happened to you, Okay. Uh, my gift at uh, this beginning of Advent season. But, but Habakkuk, like, he's important in the sense for most church folks in that if you know of Habakkuk at all, it's the fact that Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 uh, at the beginning of his letter to the Romans with these words, the righteous will live by faith. So that's where Habakkuk, you know, kind of, that's his, his calling card, his claim to fame, and it's a beautiful one at that. And that is his central message, that that the righteous, those who are right in God's eyes, live by and live from faith, faith in God, revealed in Jesus Christ and God's own faithfulness. But there's so much more to, to living by faith than meets the eye, and we see it in Habakkuk's life and his message, both. Habakkuk wrestles with the central question of how can a good God seem to allow evil to run free? He's like a little book of Job. You know, a kind of more digestible version of the book of Job. And so he deserves a better introduction than I can give him. And so to, to properly introduce Habakkuk, I want to use the words of Eugene Peterson, the now late great Eugene Peterson, he who uh, did the message translation or, pari- or paraphrase. And, and Eugene, as I say, the message is worth it for his little short introductions that he gives to each and every book of the Bible. And so here's how Eugene Peterson introduces Habakkuk. He says, living by faith is a bewildering adventure. We rarely know what's coming next, and not many things turn out in the way we anticipate. It is natural to assume that since I am God's chosen and beloved, I will get favorable treatment from the God who favors me so extravagantly. It is not unreasonable to expect that from the time I become his follower, I will be exempt from the dead ends, muddy detours, and cruel treatment from the travelers I meet daily who are walking in the other direction. That God followers don't get preferential treatment in life always comes as a surprise. But it's also a surprise to find that there are a few men and women within the Bible who show up alongside us at such moments. The prophet prophet Habakkuk is one of them. And a most welcome companion he is. Most prophets, most of the time, speak God's word to us. They are preachers calling us to listen to God's words of judgment and salvation, confrontation and comfort. They face us with God as he is, not as we imagine him to be. Most prophets are in your face assertive, not given to tact, not diplomatic as they insist we pay attention to God. But Habakkuk speaks our words to God. He gives voice to our bewilderment, articulates our puzzled attempts to make sense of things, faces God with our disappointments with God. He insists that God pay attention to us, and he insists with a prophet's characteristic, no-nonsense bluntness. And so that's Habakkuk, and what an introduction. And so it's with no further ado that we turn to our readings from Habakkuk this morning. It's three readings which kind of capture the essence of the three chapters. And so we're going to look at Habakkuk's complaining, his waiting, and his rejoicing. And so, first, his complaint. And so, for just a little historical context, it's important for us to understand that Habakkuk was prophesying at a time of great corruption within his society. Uh, The king who was ruling at the time was corrupt. He used forced labor to build extravagant palaces for himself. He restricted the religious freedoms of the priestly class, and and he undid the serious uh, uh, theological and religious reforms that had come before under the good king, Josiah. So the internal life of God's people was a mess. And then the world circumstances were a mess too. There was this new power on the stage, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and they were fighting with the Egyptians over who would get to control Judah. So everywhere Habakkuk looked, there was trouble. The internal life of God's people was hopelessly corrupt. And the external world circumstances were even worse. And so inside and outside of Judah, there seemed to be no hope. And so Habakkuk asked God two of the most basic questions that confront all people of faith at some point. How long and why? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? How long? Why? These are the classic questions of lament of complaining to God, of calling God to account, of asking God to be true to his own character. And so during Advent, we're given permission, space to lament, to pour our hearts out to God about the injustice and brokenness in the world and in our own lives. I was talking with someone recently, and they were just overwhelmed by all the injustice in the world. And it was Born, you know, not of just opening the newspaper and going, oh, my gosh, there's all these bad things, but a, a particular instance of trying to help someone and, and being able to do that, but then going, oh, my gosh, you know, they, they sort of felt like the person throwing the starfish back in the ocean in the classic parable. Like, yeah, I helped that one, but there's a million other ones I can't do anything about. And, and they just felt this despair about it. And when you don't feel that personally, you know, all you have to do is pay attention, go online, turn on the TV, open a newspaper, and, and you, you just get overwhelmed and astounded by, by, by not just the injustice, but by the impunity of the unjust. I mean, just a, a random example that I found this week uh, in just living life was I became aware of this series that the Miami Herald was running about this guy named Jeffrey Epstein, who is this multi-millionaire hedge fund manager who lives in Florida. And, and, and he's infamous because he, he basically had this system set up for sexually assaulting scores, I mean, hundreds of underage girls. But because he's rich and he's well-connected, I mean, he knows all these celebrities, these, these politicians, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have both flown on his plane, and, and, and he knows Royalton, and he knows entertainers. You know, he committed these acts where he should have spent the rest of his life in jail, and the, they had him cornered, they had him nabbed. But because of his money his connections, he was able to get a 13-month sentence in the county jail, and he got work release during that time that he wasn't supposed to get. And so you just read the details of this, and you can hardly believe how how deep and how wide, but, but also just how banal this corruption is. That's just one tiny example. And so we lament along with Habakkuk. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then there's the evil and the injustice that touches us personally. You know, broken relationships, disappointments, failures, struggles that, that we face that we just cannot seem to overcome. Hurts almost too deep to bear. Grief, loneliness, betrayal, you name it. And so we go, God, why? Why is this happening to me? And God, how long, if you are good and holy and righteous and powerful and just as I believe that you are, how long are you going to let this continue? And so we live in our own time between, and we lament that, that the world is not the way that it should be. It's not how God wants it to be. And so we ask, God, how long are you going to let it stay this way? And Habakkuk, he's bold, he's honest in his questioning of God. Because for him, walking away from God is not an option. In his lament, he's wrestling with God, and the way that he wrestles with God, and the way that we wrestle with God is in prayer. And what we see in Habakkuk, and what we're reminded to do in Advent, is to engage in unconditional, faithful wrestling with God, where we go, God, this isn't right, and we need you to do something about it. We we need you to show us what it is you would have us to do about it. So that's his complaint. But then we get to chapter two. So Habakkuk, you know, he sort of just blasts this out. He's totally honest, and then he does something that is so faithful, but it's also very deeply countercultural for us. He waits. He waits on God for an answer. He complains, he cries out, he laments. And then he waits. And he knows if he's going to make sense of this seeming contradiction between the state uh, uh, of of his society and and of the world and his own life and and the reality of God's goodness, he's going to have to wait on God for an answer because that's not something that any human ingenuity or wisdom is going to be able to to reconcile. He's got to wait and live with that paradox. He can't conjure anything up himself. And this is where it feels most like Advent, because Advent is the season that's typified by, by, by waiting. But of course, as the great American poet Tom Petty reminded us, what's the hardest part? The waiting is the hardest part. every day, get one more yard. Maybe not even that. Okay. Uh, But I mean, it's true. The waiting is hard. Waiting is so hard. But waiting for Habakkuk, it doesn't mean just sort of sitting around and twiddling your thumbs. He says, I will stand, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. So Habakkuk doesn't, you know, wait like someone sitting in their house expecting nothing to happen. He, he waits like a sentinel in a watchtower. And he, what he models for us is this particular kind of waiting, waiting uh, that is, is, is one of patient perspective and obedience. And so when you're in the watchtower and, and you're up high, and in ancient cities this was a really valuable perspective because you could see what was coming for miles and miles around. When you're down on the ground, you, you just lack the perspective to see the broader picture. Everything looks different from up high, doesn't it? I mean, we've all experienced this, gone up in some building and, oh, we look over the city and, man, it looks different. You can see things you couldn't see before. That's why, you know, we pay money to go up in the Eiffel Tower or we pay money to go up in the, in the, the Sears, sorry, Willis Tower or the Empire State Building or the John Hancock Building. We want to get up high, right? There's something that's really, really cool about it, that we will pay money to do it. I mean, you know, why, why do we do that? Because we want to see things the way we couldn't see them from the ground. And so Habakkuk, he takes this perspective in the watchtower, and, and it allows him to see things not from his usual vantage point. He has this closer-to-God's-eye perspective, as it were. And so in Advent, we're, we're invited to change perspectives as we wait. To see that while things might not make sense on, on a granular kind of street level, uh, when we're lifted up, we trust that, that we will begin to see God make sense of it all. In Advent, we can take the long view. So there's new perspective and, and there's patience within that because when we know who God is and when we know God's character, so we go, we can trust that God knows what he's up to. And that if evil is a problem for us, you better believe it is especially a problem for God. And in patience, it comes sometimes from this place of kind of assumed omniscience, that we know how things should sort of be working out in the world, that God's timing ought to be our timing as well. But patience is humble, because it says God knows best, and God never comes too early or too late, but always right on time, and that's a hard truth. But it's one that Advent prepares us for. What it means to live by faith. Because God's people waited for the Messiah for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. So, can't we keep watch just a little longer? And lastly, living by faith involves waiting, involves obedience. You can't abandon your post. The sentinel has to keep watch because if he doesn't, and an enemy or an envoy shows up, the city could be caught unawares and unprepared. And the sentinel can't abandon his post just because he hasn't seen anything yet. That would be absurd. The whole point of being a sentinel is that you keep watch regardless. That's what it means to live by faith. You you, you don't give up on God and you don't abandon your post. You keep watching and waiting, looking and listening for a word from God. And the word that comes to Habakkuk, God's answer to his lament comes in verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And you might say, well, that's not an answer at all. But in the time between, it's the answer that we need. I love what one commentator said on on, on what it means to live by faith. They wrote, "In in his poem, Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, which is, I know, a favorite of uh, John Strand and, and, and Katie Sherman. They love them some Wendell Berry, so much so that they named their second son after him, our own Wendell. They said, but in his poem, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front, Wendell Berry expresses an insight nearly the same as that in Habakkuk 2.4. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Like Habakkuk, Barry proposes neither a simple solution nor a complete resolution of the problem of injustice, but there is a hard-headed, thoughtful, and profound response to it. The righteous, the sincerely righteous, those who long and work for justice and righteousness receive the strength to go on, not because the world itself is just or because it rewards those who work for justice, but because these persons possess a larger vision of the way things should be. They possessed the vision, as did Habakkuk, of God's just reign. There will always be a discrepancy between such a vision and the real world, but the truly righteous place greater trust in the truth and in the reliability of that vision than in the brute facts of existence. And, and the truest and the most beautiful vision that we get of God's just reign. Of God's kingdom is what we see in, in the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, whose central message was, was the time has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Wait for it. Look for it. It's right there for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. And so in Advent, we look for, we wait for, we pay attention for signs of that reign, of Christ's reign among us. Which brings us to the end of our passage and, and Habakkuk's rejoicing in chapter 3. And, 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 and from Aaron's reading with these, you know, to the choir master, it's clear that this is a song. Right? He's singing. He's in church here at the end of this passage. And if he's rejoicing, we think, okay, God must have answered his prayer. His circumstances must have changed. God must have, have punished the wicked and those who are living by faith, they've been vindicated. Things, happy days are here again. Things are going good. We infer the goodness of God from our circumstances. Right? Things are going well. God is good. Things aren't going well. Yeah, It's more complicated. But if we look at at what Habakkuk's talking about in this song of praise he is singing, things could not be going worse for him at this time. We look at, at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. What Habakkuk is describing is a complete and total economic catastrophe. He has nothing. No food, no milk, no meat, nothing. So that's what he says in verse 17. And then in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so how can he do that? Is he in denial? Is he crazy? Is this just wishful thinking, false hope? Is that what it means to live by faith? Sort of live in denial, happy, clappy, you know, everything's good all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Walk around with this fake plastic smile plastered on your face. Is that what it means to live by faith? Because that sounds terrible and exhausting. But somehow in living by faith, Habakkuk has come into direct contact with the goodness of God And and, and not of God's material blessings, but the goodness of God Himself, irrespective of His circumstances. The kind of goodness that can never be taken away from Him. See, we can rejoice in whatever circumstances when we live for something and from something that can never be taken away from us. It's cliche, but I'm sorry. It's a great illustration of this principle, so I'm going to use it anyway. Mea culpa, maxima, mea culpa. But it's from one of my favorite movies too. So it's in the great classic film, Braveheart. And you know what scene pretty soon that I'm talking about. Where William Wallace says, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. And the Scottish army goes wild. I mean, it's such a, it's such a powerful moment. Because he says, we're living for something that, that they can never take away from us that's more important than what they can take away from us. And so when we live by faith, we can say, they may take our figs, our grapes, our olives, our grain, our goats, our cattle, but they're never going to take away our joy in the Lord. They may take away our jobs, our health, our social status, our cultural influence, our friendships, etc., but, but, but they're never going to be able to take away our God. So in the time between, we learn to live by Faith and thus find a joy in the Lord that can't be taken away from us, no matter what is happening in the world around us. We have that joy because we believe in a coming Messiah who, who modeled that, who gave up everything for us. He gave up the riches and glory of heaven to be born as a helpless baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He said, Foxes have holds and birds have nests, but, but, but I have no place to even lay my head. I've got nothing. At Calvary, he gave up everything, all of his royal dignity. He even had his clothes stripped as he hung naked on the cross for us. He gave up this intimate and unbroken relationship to the Father, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He gave up his very life saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus became nothing to give us everything. He died to give us life. He became poor to make us rich. And so when we live by faith in him, we know that no matter what happens in the end, God is going to turn this world right side up. That's the canticle of the turning, right? God is going to turn this thing right side up. And that's the vision we believe in and we live for, and no one or nothing can take that from us. So we complain, we wait, and we rejoice. And that's why this beautiful vision at the end, we're we're like deer running on the mountain, which the top of the mountain, that's the most dangerous place to be, but it's also the most safe place to be. And I'll never forget the first time I was in Colorado and we were just up on a mountain and randomly some, I, I think they were mule deer, I don't know what, they just ran by us on the mountain. And it was terrifying because you're like, how can they do that? And it was like, no thing, they were just running by on the mountain. And up there, they're safe. Ain't no predators on top of the mountain. They're good, right? They can look down. They can see everything. Nothing can touch them. And so they can run free in the most dangerous place in the world where you or I tread carefully. They just run. They just run. And that's a beautiful image that Habakkuk gives us. He says, we're like deer on top of a mountain. Yeah, it's dangerous. But nothing, nothing can touch us here. When we live by faith, adversity is something that doesn't drag us down, but it lifts us up. And so I close very uh, briefly with this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was the the great American theologian. I find this is so funny. His first recorded sermon that they have, the records uh, that they have uh, of this, was he preached this sermon when he was 18 years old. Um, And it's the very first one that that they have that he wrote down. And it was this sermon called Christian Happiness. And so uh, in all the sermons that Edwards gave, there was always this one central doctrine that he was trying to elucidate. So he'd say, I want to explain this doctrine, and so this is the biblical text that I'm using, and I'm going to use that to explicate it, elucidate this. And so his thesis that he was trying to prove with this sermon was this, that a good person is happy is a happy person, whatever his or her outward circumstances. And there's three reasons for this. Whatever bad that happens to us, God will eventually turn out for good. And this is Romans 8, right? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to God's purposes. So he says, whatever bad happens, eventually, 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 God is going to turn out for good and the second reason that this is true is is that whatever good things we have are things truly good things are things that can never ever ever be taken away from us these are things like the assurance uh, uh, of our salvation or that we are are God's precious uh, children in Jesus Christ also Romans 8 neither life nor death angels nor demons you know anything nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord And third, and this is the thing that we claim most specifically in in this season of Advent, is this. The best is yet to come. So whatever is bad, God will turn to good. Whatever is truly good, no one can take away from us. And lastly, the best is yet to come. Also Romans 8 where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, friends, let us claim that. Let us live from that. The best is yet to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.